Welcome to the Sustainability and You podcast, a series of interviews focusing on facts shared by passionate advocates who are part of the movement towards net zero. I'm Josephine Bush, and I'm the founder of the Sustainability and You platform. And I'm Tilly Wickens, the leader of our Young Ambassadors Council. In this podcast series, our aim is to raise awareness, encourage collaboration, and join the dots between disciplines that will influence policy and decision-making as we move to net zero. We are aiming to bridge the gap between silos and generations, strengthening the lines of communication with a small, influential community of people who care and are passionate about how we create change. this podcast, we speak to Dr. Francis Veden, Managing Director of Vulcan Energy Resources Limited, an Australian listed entity. Vulcan is a generator of electricity from a geothermal source of brine located in the upper Rhine Valley region of Germany. The brine is then taken to extract high-grade lithium hydroxide monohydrate for the battery EV market. This extraction process for the lithium is in the feasibility stage of development. So a great example of future technologies and innovation in the race to zero. This method of lithium extraction will be a first of its kind, zero carbon extraction process, providing a critical raw ingredient for the fast growing EV sector. Francis, as a founder and leader of the business, having taken it from ideation through to commercialization of the process and product. He's a great example of a much-needed, dynamic, forward-thinking leader who is both passionate about the environment and focused on delivering value to Vulcan shareholders. He talks about how he developed the business, what it means to be a net-zero business, the role of the corporate in developing net-zero strategies and engagement with communities, his approach to risk and opportunity development, as well as what it means to be an effective green leader for the future. So welcome, Francis, to the first podcast of 2022. We are very lucky to have Francis Veden with us, CEO of Vulcan Energy Resources, an Australian listed entity. I always think of Vulcan as very much a company of our green age, developing solutions to the decarbonisation of our economy with the generation of renewable electricity through a geothermal brine resource and the production of a critical raw ingredient, lithium hydroxide monohydrate for the EV market. I know you're very proudly a zero carbon company, um, Francis, but you also incorporate circular economy principles into your operations. Can you tell us about the evolution of the company and your role in leading it to where it is today? Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, Josephine and Philip, thanks very much for having me on. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, so Vulcan was essentially designed from the ground up to be the world's first zero carbon raw materials producer and specifically the world's first zero carbon lithium company. How it came about, so I'm, I'm a geologist by background and by training. I was I started my career in sort of the traditional mining industry in, in gold. I decided about eight or so years ago that gold was of no use to anyone and started a 
a lithium company with the idea that there's a severe supply shortage um, coming up in the lithium sector to service the amount of electric vehicles, um, the lithium ion batteries for electric vehicles to complete that transition to electric mobility. So I already had some form in the lithium space. Now that company did, did reasonably well, but what became apparent was through my time with that company was that so-called hard rock lithium, so lithium from sort of traditional mining sources, which produce a mineral concentrate, which is then processed in China. This was creating another environmental problem, which is a very carbon footprint um, on a per ton basis for lithium hydroxide for batteries. So Vulcan was really my attempt to, to fix that problem. And it was really sort of a no compromise approach of, well, you know, let's start with the goal, which is zero carbon lithium, you know, lithium with no net emissions effectively, and work backwards from there to try and uh, try and work out a solution. Lithium also comes from brines, so salty fluids essentially, mostly from so-called salt uh, salars or salt lakes in South America. This evaporates a lot of water, so a lot of water is is lost effectively and uses a lot of reagents. But lithium is also present in something called a geothermal brine, which is subsurface bodies of of uh, salty liquid, typically between you know two and five kilometers deep, depending on the location. These are sources of Base load renewable energy, both for heat and power worldwide. And sometimes, rarely, they're also lithium rich. So, the idea was can we use these geothermal brines both as a source of base load renewable energy, heat, and also for lithium production, and use some of that energy to drive the lithium extraction and thus creating a zero fossil fuels, net zero carbon approach to production. And that, that's how it started. How it's going basically today is so we we have over a billion Australian dollar market caps or a listed entity on the Australian stock exchange and hopefully seem to be the Frankfurt stock exchange, roughly 100 personnel in the company. And we're developing these two businesses, so the renewable energy business and the lithium extraction business and aiming to get into production by uh, 2024. So um, really trying to do something new, so producing a product, a raw materials product for the first time with a, a zero carbon. Thank you for that, Francis. So you make it all sound very easy. <laughs> so <laughs> you've moved from this uh, wonderful idea as to how to green our economy to executing it real time now. And I just want to explore that a little bit further because you always strike me as somebody who's a, a visionary leader, you know, that operates with real purpose. And there's a very deep thinking about the role of the company and um, its ability to make a difference in society. And I'd say that it's sort of you know, knowing you and hearing you speak previously. So can you say something about how you've taken this idea and, and br- brought it through to fruition, but also not just what you've done, the way that you've done it? Sure. So uh, it's, it's been a really uh, fascinating process, actually, because what we've had to do is bring together two worlds, which typically have not interacted in the past. So the worlds um, of geothermal energy development and operation and the worlds of essentially lithium lithium mining, if you like, even though we're not mining in this case, and lithium uh, processing and, and sort of more on the chemicals industry side. So I think it's really the first time that these these two sort of worlds are, are coming together in this way. And we've had to build really a bespoke team to be able to deal with the challenges of linking these processes together. From the beginning, because we started with this no compromise, zero carbon approach, it's been really interesting because even when we were a very small startup company, we were able to attract um, some really high quality um, individuals into the company. So, you know, scientists, engineers, chemists, geologists, geoscientists who are 
you know, really at the top of their game in the industry. And that's been a major part of our success. So we, we started with not a lot, but I think an idea and a goal which resonated with a lot of people. And that sort of snowballed since then. So up until recently, we haven't really needed to sort of actively recruit because a lot of good people have actually sort of volunteered to come to us. And I think the, the quality of the team has really passed the bulk success. And I think that the quality of the team is sort of down to the message and, and the sort of the goal of the company from the beginning. You know, I, w- what we're doing differently here is we're not retrofitting, you know, some sort of process to an existing operation to uh, sort of greenify it. We're, we're actually building something bespoke from the ground up. And I think that sort of that really shines through with the company and, and the strategy and, and the people. And it's a lot of what is required, isn't it, to decarbonize our economy as we move forward. We talk about, you know, the development of new technologies, new ideas that help us along that road. But, you know, people struggle to find examples of firstly collaboration, multidisciplinary teams coming together from legacy oil and as well as those that are prepared to risk take to to develop new technologies. So I, I can see that you're operating really at the heart of all of all of that. We talk about the just transition quite a lot. So if we start with that and think about how you've brought together a multidisciplinary team and you're collaborating in new and different ways, why do you think it's such a challenge for others to follow suit when you have been able to do that? Well, I think simply put, it's because we started with a clean slate. So, with with you know legacy producers in the space, you know, much like it's 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 more difficult for a a legacy automotive manufacturer to to sort of pivot into electric vehicles. And this is why Tesla, um, not comparing Vulcan to Tesla, but this is why Tesla has ascended so rapidly and been able to move so quickly in the space. There's there's no baggage. There's no sunk capital into sort of existing infrastructure and assets and equipment. So I think that's been that that's been a major part that we were able to basically we started off with finding the right process to do this, finding the right technology. So we did you know a detailed search of technologies which were commercially proven to extract lithium from these geothermal brines. So we use something called direct lithium extraction, which this particular type of absorption method, this has been used on continental style brines, so the South American types since since the 90s. They involve heating up the brine um, and handily our brine becomes preheated. So instead of using gas as they do in uh, these projects in South America, we can just use the geothermal energy. So it's a matter of it was a matter of choosing technologies which were already in, in commercial existence. And then um, then basically once we found the, the right technology, it was about finding the right asset. Mm-hmm. Um, so doing uh, search globally to find you know what was the best mix of um, lithium grades, geothermal heat, brine flow rate, you know, also applying a geopolitical filter distance to market as well. And this is how we ended up in the Upper Rhine Valley in Southwest Germany, where we have this unique resource really right at the heart of the battery electric vehicle market in Europe, which is the fastest growing in the world. So because we were able to find, you know, start with the process and then find the right assets, I think that's enabled us to be very nimble and perhaps achieve this change where it would be more difficult if you had sort of an existing asset with with Sun. I think you've been very modest as well, Francis, about your own role in <laughs> leading uh, the, the team to where it is uh, today. And perhaps we'll get on to, to that in a second. But I just wanted to also ask, how easy has it been to raise capital with something that's so new, where perhaps the risks aren't as well understood as with more traditional 
forms of generating electricity or extracting? Sure. So it was more challenging at the beginning is the answer to that. I think we did quite a good job at the beginning of doing a lot of investor education on the type of lithium extraction that we're doing and the environmental benefits of doing this. So we sponsored some some studies. So the first life cycle assessment of lithium hydroxide production globally, I think the first one that was ever done, we sponsored that. And then showing what our footprint would be, what a footprint of a a typical a direct lithium extraction project would be, and then you know using a geothermal as well to really highlight what we're trying to do here and the you know the savings of. And then we we commissioned you know some articles and an investor education into direct lithium extraction. You know the lithium industry is still a very small industry, very niche, quite closed, and so not that much sort of information filtering out into the public sphere, or at least it was sort of about three or so years ago, four or so years ago when we started. So and and this particular type of lithium extraction, direct lithium extraction is a small industry within a small industry. So it was about shining the light on that and saying, actually, you know, this is a well-understood te- technology. It has been used since the 90s. We can apply this to these geothermal brines. And, you know, the, the, the experts, the industry experts are comfortable with this technology. So this gradually started to filter into, I guess, I think the global sort of investor sphere. And things got easier in terms of raising capital as a result of that. Now, we also had, I think, much more focused on, let's say, ESG sort of friendly projects and companies in the last sort of year or two, which has really put some some tailwinds behind us as well. So that's also, I think, capital more available to us over the course of the company's existence. And then finally, we also, we put out a pre-feasibility study on the project around about a year ago now, which showed our targets, financial metrics for the project. And basically saying, you know, not only is this a, decarbonization opportunity for a material amount of uh, carbon avoided, essentially. It's also should be a highly profitable operation as well. And whilst capital intensive, it, it will hopefully be the lowest cost lithium operation in the world because we're leveraging off that freely available heat in the brine. So that also made raising capital a lot easier. So following the release of that, we undertook two capital raises over the course of the last year for about 320 million Australian dollars and really more from sort of the institutional side of things. So it's 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 getting easier, I would say. Investors become more educated as to the types of technologies that we're using now. And we've just seen Rio Tinto take over a direct lithium extraction company, not geothermal, but still, you know, a similar type of technology for for just under a billion dollars US. So there's there's corporate activity in the space as well. And once again, that that makes things easier in terms of raising capital. And you, talk, you, talk, you talked about the range of capital available there to you and the increasing levels of awareness uh, of what you're doing. Do you see that shift even in the time that you've been up and running? Have you seen that shift quite significantly? Retail backing in the early years of the company. And I think the, the power over the course of the last two years has really shifted towards retail shareholders versus institutional. I think they're able to to move markets in the way that um, has not been seen before really in uh, in public markets. So I think once again, the, the message really resonated with um, a lot of sort of mum and dad investors initially, which um, really helped with our initial capital raising and, and valuation. And then, you know, as the story develops, I guess more traditional source of equity are made available to us and have been made available to us from corporates, from institutional investors, from our stock exchange listing. And you know, lastly, over the course of the last 12, 18 months, much more focus, as you can imagine, I'm sure, on on ESG. I think this ticks, you know, a lot of boxes on the ESG side, particularly on the on the E side, but really uh, across the spectrum. And we've seen really a step change availability of, of, 
of ESG money. I think there's, there's, there's an excess of funds available for good companies and projects, and there's frankly not enough investments opportunities out there. Francis, you mentioned everything around your investors, but what's, what I found interesting is that you haven't actually meant, uh, mentioned any government support. So where do you see the government come in here from an investment point of view, but also more from a support and engagement point of view? But then also, how do you engage with the government to to pick them up and, you know, to make sure that you have their support? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Philip. So we're in Germany. So we deal with the government at a, at a local level, at a state level, at a federal level. And we also deal with the European Union as well. I mean, simply put, I think the, the engagement at all these levels is you know, tremendously positive. The, the German government has some very ambitious decarbonization plans. And with you know phasing out of coal and nuclear, really desperately needs uh, a lot of renewable energy supply, particularly heating, which is really the elephant in the room with decarbonisation in Europe at the moment. And this is something our geothermal projects are uniquely positioned to be able to service. So I think we'll be hopefully a material contributor to that decarbonisation. And also from the lithium perspective, you know, the automotive industry is the largest industry in Germany um, by quite a large margin, I think. And what we're doing here is securing a critical raw material for the presence and the future of the an automotive industry. You know, 80% of lithium hydroxide supply is controlled and the lithium batteries do not work without the lithium. So, you know, securing this supply for the auto industry in Germany means that we're very important, I think, you know, sort of strategically, geopolitically as well. So we, we've, we've had a lot of, I'd say, quite quite vocal support from, from government so far, state and federal, at an EU level as well, um, because this fits with the EU Green Deal and what they're trying to achieve, also the European Battery Alliance, what they're trying to achieve. I think this is, we're starting, in terms of what that means, we're starting to see this filter into messaging around permitting time. So we're seeing concrete actions being taken at a state level to, to shorten permitting times for renewable energy projects such as ours. In the past, I think everyone accepts that the, the, the permitting times have been just too long. And I think what we're seeing now, hopefully, is, is concrete action to, to speed this up now. So that's how the government is really assisting us. You know, from I often get asked the question, "Are we expecting financial?" I always answer, "Well, it's always nice, but we 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 can't we can't wait around for that." So perfect the, answer uh... for government, isn't it? <laughs> you know, it's the private sector taking the the lead in in solution development without you know dependency on the public purse. That's right. Yep. Yep. So it, you know, if if we if we are sort of given any assistance there, that that's always welcome. And you know, we, we know things like the. The European Investment Bank is is there to to assist, but they're not there to replace the the private markets. So and so far, we have been well supported by the private markets to to fund what we're doing. I mean, it, it, they say timing is everything, and there's a number of things that you've mentioned there that evidence alignment at the macro level of government policy, the availability of capital, clearly idea generation that's of its moment, including the need for your off-takers to evidence through their own supply chain, the decarbonisation of access to critical raw uh, ingredients for, for their own production. But you also mentioned, interestingly, I think the, the challenges and uh, of, of local issues. So where your operational footprint is that you've needed you know, local authority, local municipality and support and acceleration of, like you say, permitting and licensing, exploration and uh, the development of uh, the business. 
it's it's one of the challenges that for renewables that's it's been there sort of perennially what more do you think could be done to support businesses like yours that clearly have a line of sight to something that's a bit of a game changer in this instance in the automotive um, industry what what more can be done do you think to 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 help businesses like yours well i mean i think i think we're already getting i mean for, just from a welcome perspective I, I think as i said i think we are well supported I think more more of what we're starting to see in terms of speeding up permitting times, you know, that is a must. I think it's recognised as a must in Germany. You know, cutting through some of the red tape, it, it needs to happen for renewable energy projects. Otherwise, we're, we're never going to hit these these ambitious goals to decarbonise, and we're never going to have energy security. And we're going to be reliant um, on, let's say, geopolitically undesirable country. So. I think that, that, that that's that's a very simple need that that we all ask for. That's on the energy side. I think on the raw materials side, it, it gets a bit more complex globally because I think the West is. I think citizens of the West have developed a, a sort of a rather convenient cognitive dissonance in terms of they they want to have electric vehicles, they want to have renewable energy, but all of the metals and raw materials that are needed for this, they don't want to have the production of this in their countries, in their neighbourhoods, on their doorsteps. And they want this to happen somewhere else, sort of out of sight, out of mind. And, you know, you can read an article on sourcing cobalt for lithium-ion batteries in the Congo, and you can feel sad about it over breakfast, but um, but then you sort of forget about it. And, you know, where beside you if um, you try and open sort of a cobalt mine nearby in the neighbourhood? I think we need to get over that, quite frankly. Um, the best way to produce raw materials in the most, you know, sustainable way possible is to do it within our own countries. We have the resources to do so. We have, you know, the, the highest standards of, of raw materials production in the West. We should be taking advantage of these resources and trying to find solutions as, as, as we're doing to produce them in the most sustainable way. But we should be utilizing these resources um, and we shouldn't be offshoring our problem. We've just seen in the in the US, the Biden administration, I, I'm, I'm not too, I won't sort of drill down into the specifics, but I, I think they've been very positive on the electric vehicle transition but every time there's a project that comes up for, for copper, for cobalt, et cetera, for local production in the US and lithium as well, I, I think companies are not getting the support from the, from, the, from the federal government in the US. So there is a bit of a disconnect there. And I think the West needs to fix that in short order. Otherwise, geopolitically, we're going to be very vulnerable um, to those countries such as China who do control lithium and do control cobalt. And quite simply, you know, our, our businesses, our, our automotive companies, our battery, they're going to be beholden to foreign powers and, and we don't want that. And I mean, the energy transition and getting to net zero will be at risk because we just won't have enough supply. So we do need support at a government level to be able to extract the raw materials as well as to yeah, I think you make a very valuable point there. We've talked about investor education. There's government support, alignment and education. There's also the local community, isn't there? And and you 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 rightly mentioned, you know, the the public awareness of of how these raw ingredients arrive at our doorstep, but also you know how they're manu- how they're produced, and if it's on your own doorstep, there might be a different perception as to whether it's somewhere somewhere else. Can you say a little bit about how you manage the challenges uh, of that? I mean, you know, quite simply, a, a project doesn't get built and shouldn't get built without without the approval of you know the local communities. You know, in our case, it's a bit easier than some of the examples I've mentioned in copper and cobalt because in our case, what we've developed is 
really a non-mining production solution. So, you know, we're not, I'd be the first to admit having started my career in mining in, in Europe that building a mine in Europe is, is almost impossible, particularly an open pit mine, which is often the case for, for lithium production. So what we've developed here is a non-mining lithium production solution, which is effectively a lithium extraction circuit attached to a renewable energy plant. So what, what I think we've done is we, we have come up with something which um, we think is very palatable and indeed attractive to local community. We, we've set ourselves the target really to be net positive in terms of things like biodiversity as well. So, you know, we want to leave the area better than we found it. And, you know, as well as being net zero carbon as well, we, in some cases, depending on the local infrastructure, we can also contribute renewable heating to local grids. So that will be a direct net benefit to the immediate um, communities surrounding us. So we think that that's, you know, in addition to the jobs that we will create with this and really the jobs of the future sort of lithium extraction and processing for the battery industry, we think that this, you know, goes a long way to achieving community acceptance. But we recommend for any new project, you know, whatever you're building, it's a process. Um, it takes a lot of commitment. I think a lot of boots on the ground and, and FaceTime with local communities. So, and we're dealing across multiple communities across the Upper Rhine Valley because we're, we're developing multiple projects. So we're investing a lot of resources into that and, you know, opening up local sort of shop fronts, et cetera, so people can come in and talk. And we'll be having a, a trailer sort of traveling around, um, setting up to to talk to people as well. So I think it, it's a process, but um, I'm, I'm confident that we've got the right team to uh, to get there. How do you feel that is going so far, you know, setting up the, the shops and the trailer? Like, do you think the engagement from your community is positive so far? And actually, there is quite a lot of engagement or... Is it still a bit? I think we're very early in 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 the in the process. You know, geothermal has some opponents, just like solar and winds, predominantly around things like seismicity, which for some projects which were handled in the wrong way in the past has has produced issues. It's up to us to show how we employ best practice to avoid those those issues. I, I think you know we've we've achieved some very positive feedback, particularly from from the younger uh, generation, because they really see this as as something which is which is achieving decarbonisation and um, creating those jobs of the future. Of course, we've we've received negative feedback as well. Um, I think that's you know that's that, that's a natural sort of initial reaction at a local level. But I think the more time we spend with people locally, we, we see those attitudes really start to change quite rapidly. Once we have an opportunity to explain our story, you know, properly and to explain the benefits, what we're doing, and the whole philosophy behind the company, I think we, we we're really starting to see attitudes sort of change. We've talked, Francis, about some of the environmental benefits of, of what you're doing. Can you say something about the circular economy principles that you incorporate into the operations of the business? Yeah, sure. So I, I guess we, well, one of the main ingredients of all of this is, is, is the lithium. Um, lithium is, in theory, fully recyclable. And the process that we use to produce the lithium at the battery quality should lend itself well to, to recycling the lithium at the end of life as well. Now, we're some way off sort of getting to those volumes in the lithium industry where lithium recycling is significant, but we would certainly like to be you know, front and center of when, when those volumes start to develop. So first, I guess, from a lithium perspective, once it's produced, we expect that to be in to, to be used in electric vehicle batteries. Then once it gets to sort of you know, 80% or less of its former capacity, we expect that to be utilized in stationary storage. So there's probably 
you know, 15 to 20 years of use before we'll see that lithium again. But once that comes around, we we think that, and we've, you know, put, I guess put some thoughts into this, that we would be part of the, the other side of that circular economy as well. You know, in addition to that, the way the geothermal is set up, the, the brine is pumped up from a, a deep geothermal reservoir. The energy is produced from the brine, so heat and or power. And then the brine is, once the lithium is extracted, brine is then re-injected back into the reservoir. So that's a closed loop system. You know, water comes up and water goes down, basically. And then there's effectively a recharge from a heat perspective and also to a degree from a lithium perspective as well, because the lithium is also being picked up from, I guess, the source rocks depth as well. And so there's sort of a a circular process happening there as well. So both on the lithium side and and on the geothermal side, circularity is very much inbuilt to uh, yeah, thanks for explaining that. I think it's fascinating. In terms of your supply chain, you know, you you have offtake agreements with some very well known and branded car, car manufacturers. Um, can you say something about the type of engagement that you have with these organisations now that look to um, decarbonise their own supply chains? You're a critical part of that. But I'm really interested to um, get behind the nature of the conversation and, and the commitment they have um, to working with a, a new business like. Sure. So, I mean, we, we've, as you point out, we've completed offtake agreements now with Volkswagen, Renault, Stellantis, LG, and Umicore. Volkswagen was actually one of the first automakers to publicly state that they want to produce a net zero carbon electric vehicle, including all the raw materials that go into the batteries. And the battery obviously being the the hotspot of the carbon footprint of um, electric vehicle production. So that that was actually a major inspiration. You're seeing that statement from Volkswagen, uh, basically setting the challenge to the industry, saying this is what we want to create. Now, now go and find the solutions. And so that, that, that was a major inspiration for setting up Vulcan in the first place. And then it, we, when we sat down with them for the first time, it, it was interesting that, you know, you, you sit in a room with, with two people with, you know, the, the, the head of sustainability, as well as the purchasing person, the, the offtake sort of uh, negotiating person as well, the commercial person. So, and, and you know, the, the sustainability person carried lots of weight in that room. So we can immediately see that for setting up these new supply chains in battery raw materials for electric vehicles for these companies, it was going to be a really um, major uh, issue, this carbon footprint, water footprint, biodiversity, all of these sustainability metrics. So so that was an education. I think that's really a new, a completely new market that's being created as part of this electric vehicle transition. Great. I want to loop back to a comment that I made at the start, which was really around your leadership and and how you operate with purpose and that's strikes me as something that's core to the way the business itself operates and and its ethos can can you talk about what drives that and, and how you see the role of the corporate now in developing solutions and i mean that in quite a philosophical way actually because it, 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 there's there's operating with purpose and with a view to profit, but there's also a way of operating that really does make a difference to the long-term health of our planet. So, and sometimes people would imagine that those things aren't aligned, but I think what you've done with this organisation is show that they are. So can you say something to that? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, from a personal perspective, I mean, um, it's a lot easier to get out of bed in the morning and it sort of, well, depending on the time of the uh, sort of the uh, the team's call, you know, at various hours of the night, it's a lot easier to 
to do that when there's a very sort of clear purpose and sort of personal agenda behind it. I, suppose. I mean, you know, climate change and biodiversity loss are, you know, the two great fights uh, of our lives, I think. And, you know, as, as a, a father of two young kids, I mean, that's the main threat to my to my children that I, that I have to fight. And so that's a major sort of, I guess, personal motivator. And then I, I think I, I sort of I've, I've realized that it's really up to the private sector to to drive this change. You know, we do live in this um, capitalist society where ultimately it's down to, to the companies, the corporates to make this to make this happen. And particularly when you're first getting you have to you have to also really tick the the profitability box to be able to to raise your first funds you know on the stock markets and so when you sit in front of the fund managers or or, or the brokers who are going to be discussing your story with clients you know it, it has to be profitable it has to show the bottom line it can't just be a nice story so you have to put some cutthroat sort of capitalism in there really as well but i, I think we're, we're fortunate in that um the way the world's now is, and I think you, you, you sort of you don't recognise this at your peril. And the way carbon pricing is going, the companies that are not just insulated from carbon price going up, but the companies that can actually benefit from that carbon price going up, are the companies that will succeed today and and tomorrow and going forwards. And there's very few of them. So if, if you can get that right, you you sort of stand with only a few other sort of investment opportunities that. Um, their fund managers are desperately looking for. So yeah, I think that sort of that that initial ethos of of fusing the the motivation with the the cutthroat capitalism to make this work has, has sort of stood us in good stead since we since we started taking this. And and I'm adding my because I would say I'm still relatively young, so I'm adding my my young view on here. You see that there's a lot of attrition, especially for example in the industry I work in in consulting, and especially the younger people really want to work at a place that has value and where you can live that value and the purpose day in, day out. Because once you're passionate about something, I think it makes it easier as well and you perform um, at a higher level. In Vulcan, are there certain guidelines or are you enforcing certain rules to make sure that everyone adheres to, to certain values and principles and, and the purpose of the, I guess, your purpose that you bring to the company? And going forward, as a company grows, I guess it's always harder to to keep these things, are you are you maybe worried that you might lose some of it in, in Vulcan? I, I don't think there's a danger of that happening. I mean, the, the last time we had a get together with, well, I, the last time I was in I was in Germany and we, we had a, a good get together as a team. You know, people were coming up to me and and I guess you know holding me to account to make sure that we were sticking to the uh, the message and and the goals and being sort of zero fossil fuels and zero carbon. You know, engineers were asking me, you know, if, if they see an opportunity to incorporate fossil fuels to power our process that's going to perhaps lower costs, you know, should should we go for that? And I mean, my, my answer is is always no. We need to kind of find the solutions to to work around that. So yeah, th- there is a very strict, you know, zero fossil fuels for powering the process mandate. And there is a very strict, you know, we need to keep this net zero carbon mandate as well. And I, I don't think we're going to lose that because I think we have a rather sort of fundamentalist attitude here, but I think that really sets us apart. So we we lose that at our peril, I think, going forward. So Francis, another question I had was coming from, from a German family who is um, very enthusiastic about cars. In terms of production and the overall life cycle of a, of a car, what's the difference between a combustion engine car versus an electric car in terms of how green is an electric car really in comparison? So... Thanks, Philip. So, really important to note um, that 
even with the current status quo of, let's say, less than optimal battery raw materials production and supply chains for everything that goes into your electric car um, and the battery, you know, the lithium, nickel, um, copper, cobalt. Electric cars are still greener in that they have a lower carbon footprint, a lower greenhouse footprint than fossil fuel vehicles over the life cycle of the vehicle. And that's even with a, let's say, quite a carbon intensive, uh, dirty energy mix for the electricity, for the power that the, that the electric vehicle uses. Obviously, if you're charging off the solar panels on your roof, then that, that gets even greenest. Now, initially, when you first produce the electric vehicle, because of the carbon intensity of the battery, it is when you um, take delivery of, of your, your car, generally, depending on the manufacturer, it will still be more carbon intensive than a fossil fuel vehicle. But that, that changes by some estimates in a matter of months. And so your electric vehicle becomes lower carbon intensity very, very quick. So really important to note that that's the case. What we're saying is, obviously, we think we can do better. We think we can get to uh, to net zero for for lithium going into the batteries. And I think there's going to be solutions for all of the battery raw materials so that you truly get to net zero for those electric vehicle production. But important to note that even in the current status, go out and buy an electric car. You know, it, it, you're you're helping with the energy transition. You're helping with decarbonisation already as as the current situation stands. Well, thank you for that, Francis. And on that note, I think we will wrap up. But it's been an absolute pleasure and delight to speak with you today. Um, We wish you very well for the future. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks so much, Josephine. Thanks Thanks for having me on. Cheers.